Vox Quick Hits. This is Matthew Iglesias in Milheiser, Dara Lynn from Vox. Uh, Our question today is: What should we expect from the Biden administration's judicial nominees? Um, I think Ian, judicial guy, should tell us. Sure. So, so President Biden just dropped his first slate of judicial nominees. Um, it's eleven people, and the asks I had heard from Democratic activists going into this, um, one was for demographic diversity, you know, gender and racial diversity. The other was for experiential diversity. Obama nominated a lot of prosecutors, a lot of law firm partners, people who were in the business of representing power, basically, when they were lawyers. And the ask from a lot of Democratic activists is that we want people who have been in the business of representing folks on the margins of society. And so what Biden did was, you know, this is a very diverse list. I mean, one, there are, I think, only five black women on the U.S. Courts of Appeals right now. Biden nominated three black women to U.S. Court of Appeals jobs. So he will nearly double the number of black women on the federal appellate bench. There's also a lot of uh, people with public defense work or other work representing poor people accused of crimes. There are five people with indigent criminal defense backgrounds and only two prosecutors on this list. So in terms of resumes, this is a real shift um, for what we've seen from previous presidents. I will note that like Biden didn't pick any of the kind of liberal activists that I think are likely to agitate Republicans. You know, Trump picked a lot of anti-voting rights lawyers, anti-LGBT lawyers, you know, people like that, anti-abortion lawyers. And I don't see the equip the Democratic equivalent here. There isn't a voting rights lawyer on the list. There isn't someone who worked for Planned Parenthood on the list. But if you care about diversifying the kinds of experience that judges had, there are a lot of people on this list who have represented poor people when they were at their most vulnerable moment in their lives. I want to highlight another, uh, in addition to the kind of voting rights and other professional uh, forms of experience that aren't necessarily reflected in another form of kind of diversity of experience that we're unlikely to see a real big shift on uh, in this and in future Biden waves of judicial nominees, which is not having gone to an elite law school. Because if you think about the incentives facing the you know, the Biden administration right now, not only are they under pressure from the members of their own coalition to have more experiential and demographic diversity than there has been in the past, but there's also a very strong incentive to nominate, especially for the district courts, the lowest level of the federal judiciary, relatively young people who are going to be in those seats for a long time, who are setting themselves up to perhaps have long careers at the Supreme Court while already having some federal court experience. If you look at the kinds of people who are likely to, by the age of, you know, 40, have resumes that are going to make them suitable for easy federal confirmation, who are likely to come to the attention of the people who are making federal judicial nominations, those are likely to be people who started at elite law schools where they had access to better opportunities early in their careers than people who went to less elite law schools and got career advancement through actually doing the work of law well enough to get into those jobs. And so 
a lot of the kind of hegemony of prosecutors on the federal judiciary maybe coming to an end, maybe, or at least, you know, maybe about to get challenged. But the hegemony of people who went to Harvard and Yale and Chicago and Berkeley is unlikely to end anytime soon. No, I mean, it's I think that's a really hard problem to solve because, like, the legal profession really is built for Harvard right now. Like, you know, if you attend one of the they're, they're often called the T-14 schools, the, the 14 schools that rank highest in the U.S. News and World Report rankings. You know, the way that you generally get your first job is an army of law firms descend on your school and are like, please, we want to hire you. And when I've hired lawyers in the past, like you just get a ton of resumes and you have to have some mechanism to screen them all because it is physically impossible to like give full attention to every resume. And so, I mean, I will admit the person who went to Yale, you know, I looked at their resume and like the person who went to a lower rank school often had a tougher time getting their, their resume looked at. So like these are hard problems to fix, I think, especially in states with Democratic senators. The Democratic senator can often tap into their local network and like try to identify who those outstanding lawyers are who have non-traditional backgrounds. And I hope we see that happen. So it's not an insurmountable problem, but, you know, it really is the case that like the whole like legal profession, the way that the job advancement pyramid works is structured to advantage people who basically graduated from 14 law schools. I think, you know, one of the sort of like deeper asymmetries that underlies some of what what Ian was pointing to is that we still don't quite have in this country a like really robust progressive um, constitutional movement, you know, so that the uh, bringing more public defenders in who I, I think will make a big change is because of the sheer quantity of sort of federal criminal prosecutions that happen and the quantity of judgment calls that happen in those kind of cases that, you know, shading toward more sympathy toward indigent defendants and their problems is going to make a real uh, influence on, on how these things go. But that it's not just that you don't see the appointments of a lot of progressive activists, but that there isn't quite the theoretical body of like what what a progressive judicial revolution would look like other than if you didn't have as many conservative judges, they wouldn't issue ambitious conservative rulings. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Although the flip side is I think that most Democrats, like, like, I mean, historically, I mean, going back to to Roosevelt, I mean, FDR just wanted the courts to get out of the way and let him pass the New Deal. Like, I don't know of any reputable legal scholar who has argued that Medicare for all is required by the Constitution or like a robust environmental regulatory regime is required by the Constitution. You know, the Democratic position on most issues, I mean, reproductive freedom is an, ex is an exception, but on most issues has been just let the legislature do its job. You know, the Republicans keep suing to strike down Obamacare. They keep suing to strip the EPA of power. Democrats just want the EPA to be able to do its job and they want that power to be housed in the EPA. So, like, I think one of the big differences between how Democrats control the courts and Repub how Republicans view the courts, I have a book coming out today about this, is that I think Republicans want to shift a lot of power to the judiciary. Whereas Democrats tend to want that power to be housed in the two elected branches. To hear more, subscribe to The Weeds wherever you get your podcasts.